Hello, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent, here with my co-host, Sean Cheatham, and we are back in our normal venue today. Uh, last two weeks, it was um, me teaching a couple lessons on justification by faith alone. So uh, Sean was able to get a nice, needed break <laughs> from podcasting yes. for a couple of weeks. Um, so we're back at it this week, um, continuing our discussion through the or an Orthodox Catechism by Hercules Collins. And the way I going forward that we'll be handling this, I think, is more of a concurrent series with other things. We're not going to necessarily do them all, you know, the whole month is going to be dedicated to this. It'll be more of doing other things with this um, sprinkled in. So this might continue throughout the year. Um, but we're continuing today. We're starting Chapter 2. Um, chapter two, the second part of man's redemption, introductory questions. Um, so this is talking about how man is saved, the necessity of Christ coming and um, his personhood, um, the incarnation, how that relates to our salvation, and so on and so forth. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Sean to get us started in our questions. All right. So today we're going to start off with uh, question 12. Um, and I'll just read that here. Seeing then by the just judgment of God, we are subject both to temporal and eternal punishments. Is there yet any way or means remaining whereby we may be delivered from these punishments and reconciled to God? Answer. God will have his justice satisfied. Therefore, it is necessary that we satisfy it either by ourselves or by another. And um, this is this is important because now we're transitioning from the dilemma of man into the solution to that dilemma. The dilemma of man is we are sinful and God is just um, one of the proof texts for this. Uh, this um, question in the catechism is Exodus 23, 7, which reads, keep thee far from a false matter and the in and the innocent and righteous slay thou not for I will not justify the wicked. So if we are wicked, and the Bible does just indeed describe us as wicked, um, we're, we're in a lot of trouble. Um, God will not justify us. So we need some way to have that dealt with, and that's either going to be dealt with by us or um, by another, which we'll get into. We'll start to get into uh, in the next couple questions. Uh, did you have any comments on that, Dan? Yeah, um, just following up on your point, um, we see this too in the law itself, um, Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who misuses his name. So we see this punishment for breaking the law of God, um, even within the Ten Commandments. I think we even see this, uh, you can see this in the very next commandment too, in the fourth commandment. I'll visit the sins of the fathers and the children of the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. So God will not let his law go on. Um, satisfied in terms of its justice. And that's where this idea that it must be satisfied by ourselves or by somebody else, it needs to be satisfied or God is not just. Somebody has to pay the price for breaking that law. And so I think Mr. Collins here is focusing on, still focusing on the problem to some extent. Our condition was discussed in chapter one. Now he's moving on to, okay, where is our condition um, relevant to our standing before God? And that would be us violating his law. Exactly. So then moving on to question 13, are we able to satisfy God's justice by ourselves? The answer is not one bit. Instead, we increase our debt every day. Um, and this was not a proof text provided, but one I just wanted to bring out was Ecclesiastes 7.20. For there is not a just man upon earth, that doeth good and sinneth not. Um, every time we sin, every sin in of itself is worthy of death. We've um, sinned against a holy God, and um, by nature of his perfection, it's an infinite debt in that regard. But every time we sin, we also increase our debt. Um, we're not able to earn the requisite righteousness in order to be justified um, or to uh, satisfy God's justice in ourselves. And we're not able to remove our own, the debt from our own wickedness. How would we do that? There's only, there's only uh, one way to do that. And that's to undergo an infinite punishment, um, which obviously we're not able to do. 
So um, we're in that regard, we're in a, a little bit of a dilemma. Um, we are not able to make our, we are not able to satisfy God's justice um, in of ourselves. Yeah. Um, and one of the proof texts here, and I was actually was not able to fit it all in here, but Job 9, 2 through 3, indeed, I know that this is true, but how can mere mortals prove their innocence before God? It's a, it's a rhetorical question. We can't. We're guilty before God. We violated his law. Um, and all it takes is one sin to uh, be eternally condemned before God. We don't need to rack up a certain amount of sins. If we sin once, if we have one sinful thought, we've incurred eternal punishment because of our uh, we're sinning against an eternal God. And that requires an eternal punishment. Exactly. All right. Question 14. Is there any creature in heaven or on earth, which is only a creature able to satisfy for us, able to satisfy for us? Answer, none. First, God will not punish that sin which man has committed in any other creature. And second, neither can that which is nothing but a creature sustain the wrath of God against sin and deliver others from it. Now, this is interesting um, because this starts to go into the incarnation a little bit and who Christ is and the reason why there needed to be someone who was fully God and fully man in order to satisfy um, God's wrath. Um, we see in uh, Psalm 130, verse 3, um, that we're not able to keep God's law. If you keep records of sins, who could stand? This is going back to what Job said. We can't stand before God. We have no legal standing. We can't because we have been the ones who have violated God's law. So we need someone who can not only keep the law from a human standpoint, but also sustain the eternal wrath of God. Um, a mere mortal cannot do that. And that's why we cannot satisfy in and of ourselves that particular requirement of the law because we don't have the capacity to do that. We're finite. We will be evaporated in a second if, uh, if we were to try and sustain God's wrath. Um, what's interesting, uh, there's a quote here from Richard Barcellus that I have that was very interesting on this. Um, let's see... Uh, he said, the human nature was united to the omniscient divine nature in the person of the Son, Second LCF 8.3a. This means, though, our Lord suffered according to his human nature and only according to his human nature. The human nature remained united to the divine nature and was supported and sustained throughout the sufferings. For this is what God does in relation to that which he has made, which is but the true, the truth of divine providence. The incarnate son, according to his divine nature, upheld the incarnate son, according to his human nature. So if if we were to stand on our own, we would be vaporized. Christ had to be here as God in order to sustain the wrath of God and truly not only satisfy God's wrath um, from an eternal perspective, but keep the law perfectly. Um, so satisfying justice on both ends. Um, so that's really where we see that from. We can look in Hebrews 2, uh, 14 through 18. I'm going to pop that up here. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. You're stealing my proof text for later, Dan. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Since the children of the flesh, uh, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he was able to keep those who are being tempted. So Jesus satisfied the wrath of God, kept God's law perfectly, um, but also can relate to us. You know, he can, the book of Hebrews also says that he can sympathize with our weaknesses because of the fact that he lived the life that we did and was tempted in every way as we were, yet he did not sin. So, um, you know, we, we have a great high priest who can, as Hebrews says, can sympathize with our weaknesses and truly took on the wrath of God for us um, by being the eternal incarnate son. I wanted to make a comment. Could you bring it back up uh, Psalm 133? Um, it's, a very, it's very interesting. Uh, if you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? 
So this is obviously implying that God is not keeping a record of sins. And yet we've hmm. seen that um, God will not justify the wicked. Well, how can it be? How can it be that he's not keeping a record of sins and yet not justifying the wicked at the same time? And the only answer to that is he has removed the record of sins. Um, and we'll, we'll get into that. But by the atonement of Christ, it's he's removed that record from our account. The punishment has been born for those sins. Yep, that's exactly right. That's a great point. Um, yeah, and da David is one who is speaking as a justified um, Christian, so to speak, I guess uh, prematurely, but a Christian um, in believing in the promise that was to come. And so he doesn't have those records of sins against him because they've been uh, covered with the righteousness of Christ. And so he has this, There, you know, there's no way he can say, well, I, I God keeps record of my sin. No, he remembers our sin no more. Um, but he's also keeping in mind that, hey, I, I have sinned and, and these things are still over my head in a sense. Um, so, yeah, very good point. All right, question 15. What manner of mediator and deliverer then must we seek for? Such as one, as is very man and perfectly just and yet in power above all creatures, that is one who is also very God. We've touched upon this a little bit already. Um. 1 Corinthians 15, 25, uh, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And no, we are not post-millennialists. Um, but this is saying that Jesus Christ is, uh, is king and Jesus Christ reigns and he will um, bring all his enemies under his feet. Um, so there needed to be someone who was perfectly just, but because of the, his nature of being God, the second person of the Trinity, he has that authority. Um, Isaiah 53, 11. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. So again, this goes back to what we said before, Jesus being perfectly very man and very God, satisfying both of those items of the law that were required um, of those who broke it. So both of these questions, question 14 and 15, really go hand in hand. Um, 15, I think, just kind of brings out more of what um, of what Hercules Collins is alluding to in question 14. All right. Question 16. Why is it necessary that the mediator be, excuse me, the mediator be very man and perfectly just as well? Answer, because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned do itself likewise make recompense for sin but he that is himself a sinner cannot make recompense for others. Um, so as um, Dan was going through earlier, I wanted to do um, Hebrews 2, 14 through 17, which interested just as a side note um, is not a proof text, at least in the copy of an Orthodox catechism that we have, although it appears to be a proof text in the original Heidelberg catechism. So I don't know at what point if, Hercules Collins removed that, but um, I think it's a very good proof text in that regard. Um, verse 14, for as much then as the children are partakers of the flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham, Wherefore, in all things, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. So this is saying a couple of things, but one point I want to bring out is that he needed to be made like unto his brethren, that he could be a merciful um, and faithful high priest. Jesus is able to be a mediator between God and man because he has feet in both camps. And as a human, he can represent humans to God. Um, that's, that's a necessary requirement there. Um, did you have any additional comments on that there, Dan? Um, I was just going to bring up um, another one is first Peter three eighteen. That was another proof text for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. So I think that 
goes to your point of Jesus addressing both issues. Jesus was very man in order to truly stand in our place because a human being had to stand in the place mm -hmm. of other human beings. Otherwise, mm -hmm. um, it, the law doesn't apply to God. God made the law. It's a, a revelation of who he is in his nature. And so he had to be made very much like us. Now, he didn't fall under the curse of Adam. You know, he was born of the spirit. He is not born of physical seed. So the curse of Adam did not pass to him, but he still being in his flesh was able to live that life and live those laws and commandments out that God required in order for um, to truly be a vicarious sacrifice. Otherwise mm -hmm. God was cutting corners and we don't have a just and holy God at that point. Yeah. 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 The second part of that, uh, why must he be perfectly just as well? Um, if anybody else were to tr attempt to be mediator and he had to deal with his own sins, he, he would not be the appropriate substitute for us. Um, because that, that same person would have to undergo an eternal punishment and then they're done. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah, uh, that, that person can't also substitute for us if they have their own eternal punishment to undergo. Exactly. Exactly. The punishment cannot apply to them. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. All right. Verse or verse. Um, question 17. Uh, why must he also be very God? Answer that he might by the power of his Godhead sustain in his flesh the burden of God's wrath and might recover and restore to us that righteousness and life which he lost. So this is um, this is a very important idea why is it that Jesus had to be God? And the aspect that's being brought out here is um, he might by the by the power of his God had sustained in his flesh, the burden of God's wrath. Um, as we've been alluding to um, throughout this, the punishment required for sin isn't a eternal punishment. We have sinned against an infinitely holy, infinitely worthy to be followed God. And thus our punishment needs to be infinite. And that's why you see the um, punishment that unbelievers go through is eternal in nature. Um, they will never be released. They undergo that punishment constantly forever. Um, in order to therefore take on an eternal punishment, you would need to be have an eternal nature essentially, or something that had something that was val eternally valuable um infinitely valuable i should say and obviously jesus as to his divinity had that he was able to bear the infinite wrath of god because he himself had an infinite nature that is his his uh, god nature so um that's that's crucial here in understanding yes that's exactly right um you look at acts 224 uh, which is one of the proof texts but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So Jesus did actually die according to his human nature, but because he is God and because death does not reign over God, um, you know, we believe that God is impassable. He's not affected by things outside of himself. So it, because of that uh, quality of his nature, he is able to be risen from the dead. The father rose him from the dead. He overcame death, which is the final enemy and will be defeated in the end. Um, but Jesus, according to both natures, acted and um, a as our sacrifice um, all the way to the grave and even overcoming death for us so that we will finally overcome death in the resurrection, as we see in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, so, and then also first Peter three eighteen is also mentioned, which we talked about earlier, um, that Christ died for our sins and was actually that vicarious sacrifice for us. All right. Question 18. And who is that mediator, which is together, both very God and very perfectly a just man, a, even our Lord Jesus Christ, who is made to us of God's wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Um, so yeah, uh, it's, it, it's Jesus, um, that doesn't, shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone, <laughs> but, um, you do look at the, uh, the types of religions throughout the world and nothing compares to Jesus who is God and man and bears the wrath of God. 
Um, cause obviously you do have sort of demigods or other types of mm -hmm. entities, I guess I'll say, uh, in other religions, but, um, there is nothing like Christianity where God needs to be, his justice needs to be satisfied in order to pardon sin. And thus he takes on a human nature, um, in order to accomplish that. Yeah, that's exactly right. And what's funny is there will be some, there will be atheists who will try to compare. Well, Jesus, you know, Christianity is just some um, offshoot of these other pagan religions, or Christianity came later. They had these ideas beforehand. Nothing is the it, the death of Christ and the way that uh, God saved His people is not uh, in any way like those things. You don't mm -hmm. have um, an ultimate creator. You don't have a um, some a God who is unlike so unlike his creation. It is those gods are always like men. They might be stronger than men. They might be supermen, but they're still men, and they're and they're still creatures. They're bound to this earth. They're um, they're not uh, they're not in any way like the God of the Bible, um, and they're certainly not saving people um, in the same way that Christ did, satisfying fully God's mm -hmm. wrath, satisfying. Mm -hmm. Um, their God's wrath. It, it's Christianity is unique in that way. You know, that's very, that's a very interesting point, but that is, I think a common argument against Christianity in terms of its mm -hmm. uniqueness. Um, and, and one that I think is easily refuted. Um, but going back to the question and talking about Christ as our wisdom, righteous sanctification, and redemption, that's from uh, Hercules Collins is basically quoting first Corinthians one thirty. Mm -hmm. uh, it is because of him that you're in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Or um, uh, NKJV says uh, sanctification and redemption. So Christ is our righteousness. He is our sanctification or our holiness, and he is our redemption. And all those things are found in Jesus Christ by being unified with him by faith. And this is that covenant language, in him, in him, in him. Where those, if you were born... You were born in Adam. That is, you were unified under his headship, federal headship. But if you're in Christ by faith, you receive the benefits of being in Christ, just like you received the benefits of Adam, which are bad in this case. But we receive the benefits that are in Christ by faith and faith alone. So that's, and then essentially these things become ours um, in a spiritual sense, um, not subjectively necessarily, but Christ becomes our righteousness and that his righteousness is imputed to us by faith and faith alone in uh, being united to him. But that had to come from Christ being fully God and fully man and satisfying those demands of God's law first in order for that to be. All right. Question 19. From what source do you know this? And this is referring back to question 18. Out of the gospel, which first made known, uh, which God first made known in paradise and afterwards did spread it abroad by the patriarchs and the prophets shadowed it by sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. And lastly accomplished it by his only begotten son, Christ Jesus, our Lord. And it's interesting that they bring up the word promise. This is uh, covenant theology language here. Notice they didn't say that there was a covenant that was made. It was a promise that was made of something that was to come. Uh, Genesis 3.15 is brought up as a proof text. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And you will strike his heel or bruise his heel. So this is really the first proclamation of the gospel in seed form, so to speak. That there would be someone who would come and deal with the devil. You deal with the problem of sin. And Adam and Eve uh, believed that. You know, and that, and they were saved by faith in that way. So the gospel was sprinkled throughout the Old Testament in these promises, the sacrifices of the um, Israelites' uh, worship system. Um, they shadowed Christ and his sacrifice that was to come. And by doing that, um, they were justified in the same way that we are. But they look forward to that promise, which was to come. They look forward to what Christ was going to do, who was the final sacrifice, and he was sacrificed once for all uh, for the sins of his people. Uh, Hebrews 1.1 1, 1 is another proof text that is given here. Uh, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways. So 
I think what Mr. Collins is doing here is talking about the method by which this message was given. It was given through the prophets, and those men were carried along as they were um, carried along by the Holy Spirit. They were speaking the words of God. So this gospel is from God. This gospel is a message that God gives for how his people are to be saved. Um, but the important thing here is that the Old Testament foreshadows what's to come in Christ. These types, these sacrifices, there's no new covenant in the Old Testament. There's just a promise that points forward to what's to come um, through the death of Jesus Christ, who would then solidify and ratify the new covenant by his death. Uh, question for you there, Dan. Um, does yeah. your question 19 have the word promise in it? Was that the point you were making? or Because I don't see the word promise in there. Oh, I'm sorry. I mean, he's talking about that here. I'm sorry. Patriots and prophets shadowed in by sacrifice and other ceremonies. Shadows, yeah, oh. agreed. Yeah. Shadows, okay. Okay, I apologize. Um, the That principle is here, though. No, um, I, I definitely agree with with the principle. I was just yeah. confused because I was like, where's where's the word promise? No, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I might have misread that. Yeah. No problem. Uh, but I think Genesis 3.15 brings out that principle yes. um, pretty yeah, clearly. I would agree. Yep. Um, yep. For um, maybe did well. That's that's something for another time. I won't dive into that right there. Um, yeah, uh, it's important actually to recognize that it was shadowed. Um, the uh, the gospel was shadowed uh, by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. Um, you have all these animal sacrifices, which we know that don't actually take away sin. So what what is their purpose and they're to point to the types of things that christ would accomplish on the cross he is the summation the fulfillment the the anti-type of all these these things um for example uh the scapegoat right what what was done to the scapegoat in the uh, levitical system uh the high priest would put his hands on the scapegoat and sell it, send it into the wilderness that symbolized the sins of the people being resting on the scapegoat and then it being sent out and uh, the sins of uh, the people of God are put onto Jesus and he was sent out and cru was crucified outside the camp. Yep. That's exactly right. Yeah. Those things. And I think uh, Galatians three twenty four here summarizes what you're saying. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. All those things, the old, the 10 commandments, the old covenant law, including those ceremonial aspects of the law were guarding and pointing forward to what was to come. That would be um, justification by faith in Christ for the Gentiles at the end of the day. Um, so yeah, there's a title, uh, those shadows and types, which are pointing to, and really all of the old Testament is pointing to Christ in some way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. Ultimately that's where it's pointing to. It's pointing to what was to come ratifying in the new covenant um, those things that Christ would do. And that's, I think, where you see the amazing consistency of Scripture. It's mm -hmm. not this disjointed book. It, mm -hmm. has a, it has a central purpose. You know, mm -hmm. the Old Testament is pointing towards something great, and then the New Testament is pointing back towards something great, and they're all pointing into the pinnacle that is mm -hmm. uh, Christ and our redemption. And it's really God's redemptive history. That's all the Bible mm -hmm. is at the end of the day. Yeah. So it's very... Uh, it's a glorious thing when you see that consistency, but you do have to read it with those lenses. Yes. Um, otherwise you're going to see it as a disjointed book or, you know, as we've mm -hmm. seen some recently a progressive pastor calling out the Bible as um, not being God's word. It doesn't claim to be God's word or uh. things like that. And seeing it through a lens of um, high skepticism instead yeah. of uh, taking it at its word. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it really is a glorious thing when we see all these um, things of redemption coming together in the scriptures. Um, so, yeah, uh, question 20. Is then salvation restored by Christ to all men who perished in Adam? So the stage has been set up for salvation, who is needed to be saved, and what is the problem that man falls in, but... Uh, Hercules Collins hasn't really addressed who is part of that solution in terms of the recipients. So he addresses that here. His answer is not at all, but to those only who by a true faith are engrafted unto or united with him. So this I think would be a, 
a slam towards the general Baptists who believed in this general redemption. Um, and those that Jesus had some sort of general redemption for the whole world instead of a particular redemption that was actually effectual. Um, so I think that this would address that to some extent. But only those who believe in Christ by faith are going to receive the benefits that um, have been laid out here that Christ gives his righteousness, um, sanctification, and that redemption being bought from the world um, through the death of Christ. They are the only ones who receive this actual promise. Now, it's interesting, and I was talking to Sean about this earlier this week. Um, the first proof text that he's used here is Psalm 212. Um, and I'll put that up here. Says, Kiss the sun or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Uh, what's interesting is this chapter is used by um, some post-millennialists to support their view that because Christ is king, um, therefore, and he's going to put all his enemies under his feet, he's been given all authority, therefore the world is somehow going to have this um, universal justice and the knowledge of the Lord is going to permeate the earth at some point. Um, the particular Baptists did not believe that at all. They applied this verse specifically in the salvific sense. Notice the last part of the verse is, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is talking about faith. This is talking about believing in Christ. This isn't some external refuge or external conformity to the laws of God. This is talking about um, actually putting trust and faith in him, that the kings of the earth would put their faith in Christ. This is a salvific call. This is a gospel call, really to repent and and put your faith in the sun. That's true submission to the sun, um, not mm -hmm. some sort of external um, law that you um, apply to governments or to societies that somehow conform justice to where we think it should be. Mm -hmm. This is applied specifically in the salvific sense, which I found very interesting as I was studying it this week, because um, this passage of Psalm 2 has been flown around um, in the recent weeks. Um, but I find that very interesting. They did not believe that at all. Mm -hmm. But Christ is our only refuge, and only those who put their faith in him will be engrafted in or united with him. Um, so that's very, and that really goes, uh, like John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Only those who put their faith in him will receive the benefits that um, that Christ has given. Yeah, um, Jesus is ruling in the midst of his enemies now, and he's yes. ruling through. Um, he rules and reigns in his church. Amen. Um, obviously, we we do recognize that he has um, dominion over the entire earth, but he rules. His kingdom is the church, and it grows. And it's uh, um, it's it's his kingdom's uh, borders grow when members are added to the church. It's not necessarily talking about an external visible kingdom. Um, uh, I want to comment, you'll hear a lot, um, from a, I don't even know what to call this, um, like a semi-universalist, uh, perspective that, oh, there might be a hell, but it, it, it probably is empty or it could be empty or, or whatever. Um, and that's just, you, you read the Bible and that's just obviously comes to pieces. Um, salvation obviously is not restored to all people. It, it talks about people in Revelation um, being cast into the lake of fire and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. The Bible very much assumes that um, there will at least be some that go to hell. Wide is the uh, path that leads to destruction and uh, many will many will be on that. So um, this is an important, this is an important question. Um, obviously not everybody falls into that error, but enough people do that uh you need to remember that uh salvation is not for all that perished in adam it is by faith you must have faith and um yeah if you don't you should not treat someone who does not have saving faith as oh they're going to heaven it's fine you um you send them down a or you allow them to go down a dark path and that is not you, you don't want to be accountable for that person's soul on judgment day. Right. Yeah. Uh, unlike uh, 
you know, some pontiff in Rome that thinks that mm -hmm. all religions somehow are, we're all brothers and sisters and mm -hmm. we're kumbaya and we'll all well, be okay in the end. Yeah, if, it's 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 funny, right? When I was saying that, I had in my mind uh, Bishop Barron, who I don't know if you're familiar with, but he made that argument that hell might be empty. Um, <laughs> and obviously, while outside of Roman Catholic circles, I don't know how popular he is. I know at least one may or I know one person who might still be influenced and one person who was influenced by his teachings and it's it's just it's obviously false you you pick up your bible it's like, there's no way that could be true um it's obviously saying that people will be in hell now it's interesting that cuz the roman catholic church has historically taught a very strong doctrine yeah. of hell yeah <laughs> yeah so it's um, that how how much they have fallen away from that yeah their their leadership is not very conservative when it comes to that. Uh, I'm not no. going to say all their leaders are, obviously, but um, a significant portion, maybe even a majority, I don't know, um, is very liberal when it comes to that. Yeah, very much so. And, and that topic of saving faith bleeds into our, our next question, question 21. Um, is it not only a knowledge? Oh, I'm sorry. What is faith? Answer. It is not only a knowledge whereby I surely assent to all things which God has revealed to us in his word, but also an assured trust kindled in my heart by the Holy Spirit through the gospel, whereby I make my repose in God being assuredly resolved that remission of sins, everlasting righteousness and life is given to not others only, but to me also, and that freely through the mercy of God for the merits of Christ alone. So this goes to the heart of what uh, salvation really is. So if we have a true saving faith in Christ, we are going to believe the gospel. We're going to believe Jesus when he says who he says he is. I am that I am. You believe in his deity. Um, and it's not just mentally asserting these things like, oh, yeah, Jesus said he was God. Great. I get it. Um, you know, unbelievers do that all the time. Unbelievers say true things about the Bible all the time. Um, but that doesn't mean that they are able to understand them from a spiritual perspective, truly. They're foolishness to the world. The cross makes no sense, spiritually speaking, to the world. Um, for, uh, 1 Corinthians 2, I think it is. Um, it's foolishness. It's a stumbling block. And so um, it's more than just a mental assertion. It's a true conviction that these things not only apply to others, but apply to you, that Jesus died for you. Jesus died for your sins and that you have a right standing before God based on the merits of Christ alone. That's what this is talking about here. Um, we see Hebrews 11, 1 through 3. Um, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of that, uh, out of what it was visible. So we believe what the word of God tells us about creation. We believe God's word. God tells us something, we believe it. That's part of what uh, faith is. Um, we also see um, Romans 4.16. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Adam's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also those who have faith in Abraham. He is the father of us all. So this saving faith is what unifies us under Abraham. We are children of Abraham by faith. Uh, but it is a belief in the gospel, in that promise of Christ. Uh, we also see in um, uh, John 3, 5, Jesus answered, Very verily, I tell, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. So part of this process obviously comes from uh, regeneration. We have to be born above, and that results in us believing uh, by faith in Christ. And then finally, uh, Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So um, faith is that means by which um, salvation comes to us. And that gospel, that message that faith is in, um, is what brings salvation, is the power of God uh, to bring us to himself. So that's what saving faith is. It's not a mere mental assertion. It is a, a life-giving act to God in throwing ourselves upon Christ and the promises that are found in that gospel fully and without reservation. So 
Um, recently in Irresistible Truth, there was a little bit of a discussion about whether you needed to accept the Bible as inerrant in order to be uh, a believer, in order to be saved. Um, the person in question was making the argument, Jesus never said that you need to believe in the entire Bible to be saved. That's adding to the gospel, essentially. Um, so I want to bring out a couple issues where it says, uh, uh, it is not only a knowledge whereby a surely assent to all things which God has revealed to us in his word. Um, so there's a, there's a, uh, a little bit of, how do I want to describe this? Obviously, we, we believe that people are wrong sometimes in their interpretation of the Bible. Perfect knowledge of the Bible is not a requirement to salvation. But there needs to be a willingness to submit, even if one doesn't understand uh, what the Bible says. And that's the evidence of a true faith, because a true faith will say, well, I, I don't necessarily know everything, God, but you have said this, so I will follow it. Um, and that's more of the the attitude of faith we're we're looking for here. That um, there is there's an actual submission there. Um, so don't necessarily need to have accurate knowledge of everything in the Bible, but you do need to have a willingness to submit because ultimately Jesus Himself is the one who tells us that the Old and New Testaments are um, authoritative. Uh, he says in John ten thirty five that the Scripture cannot be broken, cannot be undone. Cannot be, oh, well, you know, I don't have to believe this or whatever. Um, you even go to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says specifically, I've not come to set aside the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Or not to destroy, excuse me, but to fulfill them. He viewed all these things as authoritative. And there's numerous other examples where Jesus upheld the Old Testament. So to say, I am a follower of Jesus, but I don't hold to the Old Testament it's either you, you don't understand what Jesus has been saying and you need to, we would hope that you would read more and come to that understanding, or you're, you're not in subjection to him. You think he's wrong. You're ignoring what he said um, for whatever reason. I don't know, but ultimately that is a, uh, that is a faith problem. You are not trusting in Christ. That is not saving faith to say that, um, oh, I follow Jesus. I believe in Jesus, but I don't necessarily believe him when he said X, Y, or Z. No, that's not that's not the faith that saves, and that's an important distinction to make. Yeah, that's a good point because yeah, we can, and there might be um, believers who are growing in their faith. Yes, and we have we might screw up on an interpretation, but you know we think it says X, Y, and Z, and we're like, oh wow, I was way off on that, and I had no clue until someone came and told me and explained it to me. Yep, but I but they believe in the real gospel. They do believe in Christ. They hold to that. Um, but yeah, there's different areas of growth. And I think if we were to hold this overarching standard like that, we would have to disqualify a lot of the early church, um, disqualify our church fathers, even Luther. I mean, Luther didn't believe that certain books that we believe are in the canon should have been in the canon and went back and forth on things like that. Um, well, ultimately, we're, we're Baptists, so we would have to say Calvin was uh, disqualified in that regard. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, we believe they had a bad, he had a bad view of infant baptism and yeah. covenant theology, you know, but we believe he's a brother in the Lord. Yes. Um, yes. We believe we'll see him one day. Um, but yeah. And so I, I don't think that's the spirit of what um, Mr. Collins is talking about here when he yeah. says yeah. that we have to assent to what God has revealed. Yeah. Um, otherwise we would all be disqualified. Mm -hmm. Which ultimately yep. does say, things which God has revealed to us in his word. Ultimately, it is God who reveals things through right. his word. If we have a mistake, it's not because God revealed us that mistake. It's because we have misinterpreted it. Right. God right. only reveals truth to us. So exactly. uh, if we do not assent what God has communicated to us in his word, then we are, we are in rebellion against him. Yes. Yep. Exactly. All right. On to uh, question 22. What are those things which are necessary for a Christian man to believe? Answer, all things which are promised us in the gospel. But some of this is briefly comprised in the articles of the Catholic and undoubted faith of all true Christians, commonly called the Apostles' Creed. And here's the creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord 
who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, from where he shall come to judge both the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Um, so here, um, Hercules Collins, or uh, yeah, excuse me, Hercules Collins, yeah. um, is just uh, bringing out a, a traditional Christian creed showing the, uh, the summation of uh, the gospel, or what is to be believed. And um, if you want a uh, biblical example, you could go to First uh, Corinthians uh, 15, where Paul lays out the gospel that was um, that he delivered and was delivered unto him. Uh, a couple interesting things about the creed: um, uh, it says Catholic Church, and um, yes, we would actually say that we are part of the Catholic Church in a sense. That's not to mean Roman Catholic Church but Catholic just means um, universal, essentially. And we do believe in a universal church. We're not um, uh, landmark Baptists. Um, we believe in a universal church. So it's perfectly appropriate to use the term Catholic church, as long as you make a distinction from the Roman Catholic church, which claims, no, it is the universal church. Um, also, Jesus descended into hell. Um, uh, again, or well, that's it, that's perfectly fine language if you have the understanding that hell is just merely the place of the dead, um, which we would agree with. We're not saying that he suffered in hell, as some people try to say. No, um, he descended into the uh, he descended to the dead. He did actually die, and he went to where the uh, dead go. And on the third day, he was raised um, back to life. But um, we or we're not trying to say that he undergrew, underwent um, punishment in hell. Um, uh, upon the cross, right before he died, he cried, it is finished. And it was. The payment was made and finished with his death on the cross. There's nothing else that is re was required for our salvation at that point, aside for his raising from the dead. Amen. Now, I don't know. Are these notes... Um... Are they from Hercules Collins? Are they from the author or the editors? I expected that they were from the, um, well, maybe not. I, I expected that they were tell. from the editors um, because I would expect that um, people of that time period would understand the creed and understand what Catholic meant. But I, mm. I could be wrong. That could actually be because there are there are note footnotes explaining that in our copy. I just didn't know. Um, if they were from the uh, the author or the uh, revisers of this, okay, or the editors, I should say. But regardless, that's essentially. I just went through essentially what was in the footnotes. What's <laughs> <laughs> interesting is, um, I think what Hercules Collins is doing here is he's trying to identify himself with historic Orthodox Christianity. Remember, this was a struggle that the particular Baptists had. They always had to fight for their uh, validity you know hey those anabaptists over there hey guys we're not anabaptists we're not anabaptists here's why okay we got we got a catechism we got a confession we're saying we believe what you believe minus x y and z and so they're saying look we're, this is what the church has confessed that we are identifying ourselves with orthodox biblical christianity we're not making anything up that's new we're just uh we're identifying on those core truths with uh with the universal church, those who truly believe in Jesus Christ. Uh, that's, uh, I think, good to point out. Mm -hmm. All right, question 23. Into how many parts is this creed divided? Answer, into three. The first of the eternal father and our creation, the second of the son and our redemption, and the third of the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. And if you go back through the creed, that's exactly right. It's um it's trinitarian in that regard, um it's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and showing the roles that each of them have: Father, Creator, Son, Redeemer, and Holy Spirit, our Sanctifier. Um, and that's that's important to recognize. Every single member of the Trinity is glorified in the act of creation and salvation. Um, 
Yes. There is not one person that is neglected in that regard. Uh, right. Salvation ultimately is a Trinitarian act, and every person of the Trinity plays their respective roles. Yep, that's exactly right. All, All right. right, question 24, final one. <laughs> Seeing there is but one, one only substance of God, why do you name those three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Answer, because God has manifested himself in his word that these three distinct persons are that one true everlasting God. And uh, that's, that's important, right? Because um, Trinitarianism is not something that you would get from natural revelation or nature. Um, yeah. The reason why we are Trinitarians is because God has communicated such to us in his word. Um, and we think that's abundantly clear. Uh, just looking at the amount of proof texts, I think out of all the questions we've gone through, this is the one that has the most proof texts in it. Um, some people want to say that Trinitarians are actually tritheists by definition, that we just believe in three gods. Uh, <laughs> this question is important to say that there is but only one substance of God. It's mm. tri-unity, trinity. Um, so we are still monotheists. We just think that the one God is... Um, three distinct persons, three distinct, three distinct persons share in the being of God. Um, and that is why we're still monotheists um, for proof text for that. Um, Deuteronomy six, four uh, hero Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Uh, there's one God, but you will see all over the place that clearly um, the father is identified as God. The son is identified as God and the Holy spirit is identified as God. And, these are not three or they're not three. We're not modalists. They're not the same mm. person pretending to be three different people. Not that modalists would describe themselves as uh, the, that God was pretending, but regardless, um, you can see that I think very clearly in John 17, uh, John 17, five, this is Jesus uh, praying to the father. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. So very clearly, two separate people both existing before the world was. They both had glory before the world was. And yet there is still only one God. Um, and then the other thing I sort of wanted to highlight was the deity of the Holy Spirit. We're very, and rightfully so, very invested in... Um, defending the deity of Christ, but oftentimes because of that um, work or um, trying to defend the holy of the, the deity of the Holy Spirit is neglected. So just for um, one proof text, Acts 28, 25, and 26. And when they agreed not among themselves, they departed. Um, after that, Paul had spoken one word, well spake the Holy Ghost by Isaiah the prophet unto our fathers, saying, Go unto this people and say, Hearing ye shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see and not perceive. And if you go back to the Old Testament reference that he's referring to, it's Jehovah that's speaking. It's God. So Paul is saying, the Holy Spirit said this. The Old Testament says God said this. Well, that's because the Holy Spirit is God. He is the Spirit of Jehovah. He's also identified as the Spirit of Christ, who is also God. Yep, that's exactly right. And then um, I think 1 Corinthians 2.11 as well. Who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit with them? In the same way, no one knows thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So omniscience is being ascribed to the spirit of God mm -hmm. here, which is a quality that is only attributed to God that no creature has. So he's identifying the spirit as God and that the spirit of God um, is what reveals the truth about God and what he wants mm -hmm. to us. So the spirit is being identified as God here. Um, yeah. And then John 1, 1, I think is a classic example mm -hmm. of that distinction between the father and son, you know, from all eternity. Um, Psalm 110, which is another post-millennial favorite. Um, Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make my enemies a footstool for your feet. So mm -hmm. there's a distinction here in the persons. Mm -hmm. The father is speaking to the son and giving mm -hmm. him this commission um, or this, uh, this right to sit at his right hand mm -hmm. um, and giving him all authority essentially. Mm -hmm. And that's Jesus actually uses that to make the 
um, that exact point in um, Matthew 22. Um, he, he goes to the Pharisees and says, um, based on the psalm, David is saying, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So how can he be David's son and yet David's Lord? Because you got to understand in Jewish and biblical thought, how could the son be greater than the father? And if he's a descendant of David, how could he be greater than David? How could he be David's Lord? And the answer ultimately is because he's also God. That's the only so, answer you can come yeah. to. He's either greater than the father or lesser than the father, which he mm -hmm. clearly says he's not because mm -hmm. he's, yeah, I'm, I'm David's Lord. Well, that's, um, that's the language that's applied to the father. Oh, you're, mm -hmm. you're on the right track. That's, that's where we're going. Uh, Jesus in you know, John chapter eight too, identifying himself uh, as the great I am before Abraham was, I am. Yeah. Um, and applying that the, uh, the, is it the tetra, tetragrammaton? I can't remember how you say it. Tetragrammaton. Yeah, 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 Yahweh, applying it to himself um, from Exodus chapter three specifically, and, and saying, "I am the great I am. I am the self-existent mm -hmm. one um, mm -hmm. who made Abraham, mm -hmm. who knew Abraham before he even mm -hmm. uh, was born." So yeah, we see these clear um, these clear attributes of God applied to these mm -hmm. the three different people of the Trinity very clearly in Scripture. It um, also. Sorry. No, 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 go ahead. It also goes to uh, Jesus's timelessness, right? Because before mm. Abraham was temporal statement, I am. I mean, I guess it's a temporal statement, but it's present tense, right? How can it's it's the, the tenses of the verbs there are demonstrating that Jesus is um, regardless mm -hmm. of what time before Abraham was. You'd, you'd expect him to say before Abraham was, I was. But no, it's right. before Abraham was him was I am both a reference to the fact that God is a temporal and also demonstrating that Jesus is a temporal. He stands outside of time. Time does not necessarily have any reference to him, even though he entered in time. Exactly. And uh, I think we see this clearly. You see this in chapter two, paragraph three of our confession, second London Baptist confession of faith it says in this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, the father, the word or son, the whole, uh, and Holy Spirit of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, all infinite, without beginning, therefore but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations, which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on Him. So all of these core attributes, eternity, um, self-existence, aseity, power, all of those things are attributed to all three persons of the Trinity at the same time. You know, and, and those who hold to a modalistic view tried to say that, you know, God was the father at one point, then he became the son, he manifests himself as a son, then he manifests himself as the Holy Spirit. Uh, but the scriptures talk in this concurrent nature. I mean, was Jesus talking to himself when he was praying in John 17? Absolutely not. He was talking to the Father, someone who was outside of, or I should say, distinct from himself in personhood. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the Trinity is not something that you can gather from one verse. It's something mm -hmm. you have to get from all of Scripture. It's taking Old Testament passages about God and New Testament passages mm -hmm. about God and forming this system together. Mm -hmm. uh, but it has to be from a consistent hermeneutic. And this is a this really is a core doctrine. I mean, if you get this wrong, this can lead to serious errors. And I would say, if you um, promote a heretical view of the Trinity, you're—I don't think you're a Christian. I think it's a core doctrine that you must believe in yeah. order to say, yeah, uh, because you start to encroach upon um, core aspects of the faith once you start to um, uh -huh. mess with the Trinity. Yeah, the Bible is very careful. Um, about protecting the uh, person of Christ. Um, uh, I would commend to you to read the epistles of John. They're very um, clear that if you don't have the right person of Christ, you are not a Christian. Yep. That's exactly right. You don't believe he's the Christ, you're not of God. That's exactly mm -hmm. right. You don't believe he no. came in the flesh, which is both a reference to his divinity and his humanity. Because what do you, what do you mean John came in the flesh? Everybody's in the flesh. No, Jesus came in the flesh. He was God, and he took upon himself a human nature. 
But also, it's important to remember, he had a human nature. If you deny that human nature, you are also not a believer. Right, exactly. Amen. All right, well, that gets us through Chapter 2 of an Orthodox Catechism. Um, hope it's been helpful. Um, next week, Sean will be teaching at Covenant Reformed Baptist Church. We'll be doing another live uh, recording stream from uh, CRBC, so look forward to that. And then the week after that, Lord willing, we'll be having a special guest on. Um, I'll wait to announce, <laughs> but uh, we'll be announcing here uh, shortly, but mm -hmm. looking forward to that as well. Uh, but with that, everyone have a great weekend and Lord's Day tomorrow, and we'll see you next week. God bless. <laughs>